Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 76. My name is Urban. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. How you been doing for the past week, Fooliman? It's good, you know. Had a nice Thanksgiving. Saw some family members, all that sort of thing. How about you? Yeah, can't complain. Um, did the same. Went, went back home to, uh, to my parents' place. Uh, got to see them, which is always a good time. And thankfully, the Leafs uh, won against Detroit. It would have been a much worse weekend if they didn't. <laughs> Yeah, they kind of pulled it out at the end there after a bit of a tough couple performances there. Yeah, I mean, it's we talked about the the Montreal game uh, last week, so we can kind of pick it up from there and just quickly. I I guess most people don't need us to recap the Leafs. You're Leafs fans. You you, you know what's happened. But they played really a a great game against St. Louis that came up short in part because Jordan Bennington just played really phenomenal and Freddie Mm -hmm. Anderson didn't. And then they had an incredibly dispiriting loss to uh, Tampa Bay. Yeah, the losses that stay with you are the ones where you you feel like this team does not belong on the same rink as their opponent, and that's how it felt against Tampa, where they were, like, totally outclassed. And I don't think they are totally outclassed by Tampa, even though Tampa is a better team. And Tampa's kind of had a rough start to this year themselves. They lost to Ottawa, and they deserve to lose yeah. to Ottawa. Which, you know... A certain number of teams are going to lose to Ottawa this year, probably at some point us, but deserving to lose to Ottawa. That's what really gets you. So, yeah, it it just, you know, it was so bad that it it almost does feel like just a burn the tape game. Like you kind of can't overreact to games like that or you're going to pull your hair out. Yeah. But it it was pretty gross. It was not good. No, and it, it spawned a whole bunch of, I guess, soul searching I guess from the from the Leafs, based on what we saw, certainly for an early season game, you know they had a quote unquote family meeting after to discuss mm-hmm. the effort level and things like that, and that's never really a great sign. But they they pulled it out with a, a good win against a really really bad Detroit team. Yeah, I feel like Detroit agreeing that they are really bad. They do seem like they're playing kind of at the maxed out version of a team for their talent level. Like, they have one legitimate scoring line. And then they have a lot of guys who are playing very tedious, conservative, defensive hockey and who are kind of playing the system as best they can. And it kind of kept them competitive against Toronto despite a pretty enormous talent disparity. They're they're like an October bad team when, like, they haven't lost all hope yet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Wait for February, a couple of the the rentals get traded away, and then see what happens. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it was nice to at least pick up a couple of points there, put out the fire that was burning in terms of Leafs Nation. There were some signs in that game that maybe weren't the most positive, and that was that we won on the strength of our bottom six. Mm-hmm. And you actually just wrote about this. Yeah, so... I mean, I guess there's a couple ways you can look at the wins that you get from your bottom six, right? And this was the most extreme win from the bottom six possible, where not only did the bottom six forwards score all five goals in a 5-2 win, but they were actually the ones get who got most of the good chances. It wasn't like the Austin Matthews and John Tavares lines were buzzing all around the net and just couldn't, just didn't happen to score. It's that the Kerfoot lines and the Gauthier lines, was just they were just legitimately better. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's the positive way to look at it is you managed to win a game where your stars weren't playing well, right? That's like found money, right? Your stars are going to be stars. We don't believe that, you know, Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and William Ian or John Tavares like forgot how to play hockey for that one night. They they had a bad night. It happens, and really that applies more to the Matthews line than the Tavares line, who I thought was okay, right? Given the the competition. Um, so that's the positive way of looking at it, you know? You you, mm-hmm. you stole one, in a sense. And, you know, if you have depth that can steal you games, that's really important, especially in the playoffs where your stars are not going to be cooking at 100% every single, get, every single day. Now, the glass-half-empty look at it is that's not a terribly repeatable way to win. And for a team like the Leafs especially, that is so top-heavy, you need your stars to be your stars you need them to kick ass and you need them to be great every day right or for not every day but close to it and especially against a team like detroit who again we we should emphasize this they are ass (laughs) 
complete you, ass. Yes, you can reasonably expect more from those mm-hmm. lines, right? And it's a little disappointing that they weren't able to do that. Now, again, it's one game, but in the case of the John Tavares line, it continues kind of a trend that we've seen to start the year where they simply haven't been very good. And for the Matthews line, well, they while they have been putting up points and putting up strong shot differentials, it's been in a different way than we are used to seeing from them, right? So um, I talk about this a bit in the article, but do you want to just quickly jump in with kind of the differences that we're seeing, especially offensively this year compared to last year? Sure. I mean, the biggest thing is that the Leafs have historically been very good at getting very high quality chances. Uh, Austin Matthews is the poster child for that. He would get to the very dangerous areas of the ice and he would take chances and he would convert on them at an above average rate. I remember last podcast, you talked about he's almost the only player who gets a lot of chances, a lot of high quality chances and finishes on them at an above average rate. This year, we're seeing less of that from his line in terms of high quality offensive generation. And we're seeing much less of it from the Tavares line where, you know, John Tavares is a guy who, uh, he was so prone to those sort of short-range goals that I actually saw a video last year mocking him for being basically a tap-in artist. And it's like, well, if tap-ins get you 47 goals, I think we're going to take it. But he's not in that high-danger area to the same extent that we're used to seeing from him. And so our top two lines, for all their offensive prowess, and for the fact that they still are getting shots, they're not getting quality the way that we were hoping that they were. Um and I have to say, <laughs> even though I'm saying this, credit where it's due goes to you because you were noting this very early um, in the season. Yeah, as with most of our ideas, Katya pointed it out first to <laughs> us as well. So we should we should give some credit to her. Um, but yeah, you, I mean, you hit it on the head there. It's it's kind of striking um, to put some like actual numbers on this. So last year, I'm just looking at Hockey Viz's threat, which is kind of the simplest possible expected goals model it's just location weighted shots effectively but they estimated the Leafs 5v5 offense as 15% better than league average last year this year it's estimated at 1% better than league average right so you go from highly above league average to basically league average and the major difference is that we're not taking any shots in the goal mouth right um previously there was like this kind of blob of death there whenever you look at the heat map of where the Leafs shot from they were just always like right in the goaltender's face and they're just not getting there this year and it's it's weird it's very weird um now part of this could be the loss of of Zach Hyman I'll pause here to give you a minute to gloat yeah I've never thought Zach Hyman got enough credit for how useful he was um as a complimentary piece on those lines, and also as a guy who just had a ton of point-blank chances, and they're mostly remembered because he doesn't have the greatest hands, so people remember him bouncing those chances off the goalie's pads, but nonetheless, he did get them, and they were conducive to an effective line. Yes. Anyway, thank you. (laughs) So Hyman is undoubtedly very good at that. I struggle to believe that that missing Hyman is the sole reason we've seen this huge drop-off in net front shots. For the least, especially because it's also affecting lines that he's not even on, like the Matthews line. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, in the case of the Matthews line, they've actually been quite strong defensively. So their shot differentials are very good. They're actually noticeably better than last year's, but it's tilted towards slightly above average offense and good defense, as opposed to what we're used to seeing from Matthews, which is insane, crazy, super awesome offense and mediocre to poor defense. So, in Matthews's case, I guess it's not really a problem per se if he continues to be good defensively and if his line continues to have good defensive results. But it's kind of very different to what we're used to seeing from him, and it's unclear, at least to me, a why that's occurring, and b whether it will continue. Right? We don't expect players to kind of drastically change their kind of player profiles over the course of a season especially a 22 year old right like mm. we expect them to get better potentially but often it's better in the same ways so Matthew's suddenly becoming kind of meh in terms of being an offensive play driver but getting good defensive results is 
quite unintuitive, right? Um, and the same is true of William Neander, by the way. Like, uh, when I'm saying Matthews, I really mean the Matthews line. And that primarily means Matthews and Neander, with Janssen as a, a good complementary piece, but very much a complementary piece there. Mm-hmm. Now, if we move to Tavares, the issue is kind of a bit more dire, because like the Matthews line, they're not generating slot shots, or sorry, net front shots specifically. Unlike the Matthews line, they have not had good defense either. So they're just kind of getting run over when you get expected goals and actual goals. And mm-hmm. there's been a lot of talk about this line to start the year, especially because of Mitch Marner's you know contract and it's the fact that it's an oversized, essentially. Um, the captaincy on Tavares, Kapanen kind of getting some heat. This line has been a bit of a lightning rod so far, and part of it is fair because they haven't been performing well, and part of it is a little unfair because they're also getting PDO'd, and getting PDO'd mm-hmm. never makes anyone look good. Um, do you have any particular thoughts on that group right now? So I have two things, and one of them is an eye test, and one of them is reading in a bit of an off-ice thing. And so this is uncharted territory for us back to excited where we like want metrics before we decide to brush our teeth in the morning. Um, the Leafs seem to have moved away from the much maligned stretch pass by my eye, um, which they used a lot in previous years. And so the stretch pass, if you remember, was the defense, when they would get it in their own zone, would attempt to make a long pass that covers most or all of the neutral zone, getting to the forward. And so the forwards are playing quite high in the neutral zone is the idea. And then they're behind some of the opposing team and they can rush in and get some chances. This, when it works, leads to high quality chances for, and when it doesn't work, the pass gets cut and the other team rushes back in at you and now you have to recover and clear it again. It's a little hard for me to determine how much of that is going on compared to last year because again, it's a small sample and two, it's not tracked. So I'm going on my eye test. They're doing it a lot less. I'm fairly convinced. And I do wonder if the move to shorter passes with the forwards coming lower in the zone, um, trying to make a safer breakout, but maybe a less spectacular one. I do wonder if that's having an effect and if that's a factor in seeing both of our top two lines get slightly lower danger chances. The other thing, and this is the personal thing I alluded to, is John Tavares has a newborn child at home. And if you have had kids or you have friends who have kids, you know, you know, for the first couple months especially, um, that is a very drastic lifestyle change that happens real quick. Um, and so I don't know how much of that is a affecting things, but unlike a lot of the other kind of speculative stuff about, you know, weight of the contract, weight of the captaincy, which I don't really feel like is a huge thing. I mean, Tavares has been a captain before. Mitch Marner believed he was worth a billion dollars before this contract was signed, so I don't know if that's a huge change. But I could actually see, you know, having a disrupted sleep pattern, changes in your household, you've got a lot more stress. I could see that having an effect on on your play for a while, enough to have a noticeable impact. I will fully admit that is a bit of speculation there. I just don't think it's crazy speculation. Yeah, it's, to a large extent, this is kind of one of the, not failings of modern analytics, because it's not a fault of the numbers, it's a fault with with me as an analyst, but like the numbers can say, okay, we're missing net front shots. They can't, at least right now, say why, unless we are able to track the sequences that the Leafs are kind of doing it given that their Corsi is quite strong and um their their shot rates are actually still at least with the Matthews line pretty similar to last year they, it seems like they are getting into the zone with decent frequency but they're not able to create those as you said those high danger shots when they get there and that might be the fact that when they do get there if they're kind of going to a slower more controlled east-west build-up then maybe there's more defenders back and it's harder to get to the net front area. Um, Might just be that they're not getting rebounds. A lot of how the Leafs generated offense last year was like through low to highs to their defensemen who would walk the line, fire shot on net, they'd go for a high tip and then try and create a rebound and a scramble based on that. Maybe those sequences haven't really worked to the same degree. Um, Certainly missing Jake Gardner Mm -hmm. hurts in that regard. He's an excellent offensive defenseman. 
and Morgan Riley is too, and so is Tyson Berry, but they're they're different in that Riley and Berry tend to be a bit more active, and Riley has also struggled on, on offense this year. People have talked a lot about how Riley CC sucks on defense. They do, but <laughs> the major issue is that, you know, Morgan Riley's a glass cannon, but right now he's a glass cannon who's firing blanks. That's damning. So, yeah. So, and <laughs> Katya had a great article on this um, that, that detailed, you know, that, hey, it's not Riley's defense that's the problem, or at least it's not Riley's defense that is the new problem. The new problem is the offense, and that's kind of bleeding into the Leafs as a whole. It's also a bit hard to separate the Tavares line from Riley CC because they have spent a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are getting the tougher uh, competition, at least the Tavares line is, in terms of top-end forwards. I think the Matthews line has a similar amount of top-end defenders, but it's so early that one game can really throw that throw that out of whack, so we don't want to read into that too much right now. Yeah, there's a... I, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, all, all I'll note is that um, Tavares' numbers are better when CC is off the ice, or not on the ice with him, but that's the seductive power of Wowies, so I don't want to fall for it too hard. But uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to be, you have to be careful. Um, what if you thought of, I guess, so we talked about the lines in general, but I, I think we can agree that aside from the kind of weird distribution of the results on the Matthews line, where it's worse offensively and better defensively than we expect, that line has generally been fine. Yeah. Right? Like we're, I think Matthews has probably been our best forward to start the year, our best mm-hmm. player to start the year, and I'm comfortable saying William Nienander has been our second best. Yeah, I think they've generally been very impressive. They didn't look the greatest in that game against Detroit, but they looked very good in most other games. I mean, I guess no one looked good against Tampa. but They they were the best of that group against Tampa, which is not saying much, but they also were dominant against um, Ottawa. They played well against Columbus. They played very well against St. Louis. Like That line mm-hmm. is getting it done. Um, and if they can rediscover that elite offense while maintaining the current level of defensive play that they have shown then that's an absurd line one of the best in the league now i'm not sure they'll be able to do that that's a very very tough ask Mm -hmm. um because we're basically saying if they that line is good but if they were better they'd be great right which is a (laughs) bit of a a silly thing to say but matthews and Nylander together they seem to work so well and we have three years of history that says that they're, they're one of the best duos at creating offense in the league it'd be weird to see a structural shift in that now um so anyways that line aside if we push them to the side and say okay they've been good enough and i think jonson's been fine too he had a lot of shots against detroit although i think he made some pretty suboptimal shooting decisions well he um, got the bucket he's just sort of like bombs away yeah you know, like pretty yeah. much every time yeah it's, a, it's like okay just just think a little bit first um yeah. but jonson's a good third banana What's been your thoughts on Mitch Marner? Because he's he's come under a lot of fire. He does seem to be making a lot of little plays that are good and that aren't maybe leading in a straight line to results the way that we're used to seeing. Like, I can think of two or three things that he did against Detroit where he was, you know, putting up takeaways, stuff like that, um, that were impressive, that were nice little Mitch Marner moves. It just hasn't been leading to goals for in the way that we're used to seeing. Um, and especially at even strength, you know, it looks rough. On the power play, when he gets set up, he's still brilliant. I think, by and large, all of the stuff with Mitch Marner looks like stuff that it's going to work itself out. Like, I, I, you know, I've snarked a bit about the contract and be like, oh, we're paying him $11 million to do X, X, and Y. But the reality is, my eye test tells me that it's like, a lot of the obvious positives are still there and common sense also tells me that he his skill probably didn't evaporate over the summer contractor no so i think it's just a matter of kind of getting more comfortable getting back in the groove a little bit and i think it'll work out yeah i mean i think uh briggs do who who writes at ppp as well had a nice point when we were chatting about this and he, he said that like there's been a lot of plays where 
the Marner line is like one pass away from something really good or Marner himself is like one pass or one move away from a prime scoring chance and it's like those plays happened like 95% of the time last year and they're just not happening quite yet this year like against um I think Detroit he uh missed Mikhaev on a shorthanded two-on-one right like yeah just, which is just you know those are free goals normally yeah and it's like Mitch Marner is a great passer he didn't forget how to pass I'm sure most times he hits that right um so it's it's unfortunate timing to kind of have a pdo slump as well um just like it kind of was for d-lander right Mm -hmm. coming off a contract where people think you got overpaid it it, it, no one looks good when they're like dash five right or whatever he is right now so he I, i am confident that he and that line will get better for one it's hard for them to get worse there's nowhere to go but up uh, in terms of kind of their offensive generation and two it's like i just don't believe that Tavares has gotten worse to this degree or that marner is no longer the player he was um i do think hyman was important to that line and we're seeing that um kasperi kapanen is a good player but he might not fit as well as um as hyman does there mm-hmm. but I, I i don't i don't think that line's poor performance is on kapanen to any particular degree like to any extreme degree i think he plays a part in it but Tavares and marner are equally if not more culpable yeah i mean ultimately when you're the guys who are making 22 million dollars or whatever it is on you um just in sort of a rational sense you, you know you're expected to be way more important i i do think kapanen has looked uncomfortable to me i thought that he would be fine playing offside i have to say so far i may have to revise that opinion um, he doesn't seem like himself playing on his off wing so far. I don't know if that's a comfort thing or if it'll get better, but, you know, by and large, it is the two big names on the line that bear responsibility for it, and they should be able to work it out. There's just too much talent not to. Right. I mean, we, you and I both think Zach Hyman's a very good player, but we don't think he's irreplaceable to this degree. No. I, I mean, the reality is that line should be good with, like, any competent NHLer on it, and notwithstanding some of the struggles that Kapanen has had, he is a better than merely competent NHL forward. Yeah, and for what it's worth, I think Kapanen was reasonably good against Detroit, uh, and was actually the best of the of that line against Tampa. Again, not saying a whole lot, and mm-hmm. he had a truly unfortunate kind of own goal where a puck just was banked off his skate and went got by Freddie, but... Um, I think he has been getting better. It is a bit of a an odd situation for him because his offense is kind of as a one-man band in a lot of cases, right? Like mm-hmm. he, where he can take the puck, just streak up on his uh, strong side, use his speed, gain the zone, and then create offense through that. And that's not really how the Tavares-Marner line works. Neither of them are particularly burners, right? They ha- they're strong on their skates, but in different ways than Kappen, who is kind of like a, a roadrunner. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think we'll see how it how it goes with that line. Um, now might actually be a good time. We, we're talking about the top six, but while we're recording this podcast, news has broken that um, Rasmus Sandin has been sent down to the AHL, and the Leafs have recalled Kevin Gravel. Yeah, uh, so that's kind of, gosh. I was not expecting that. No, I'm a little surprised. Okay, so the background for this is obviously Rasmus Sandin is on his entry-level contract. He's 19. If the Leafs send him down before he hits nine games played, which obviously he hasn't yet, uh, his entry-level contract can slide a year, meaning that there's an automatic extension of another year of entry-level contract. Probably makes Sandin a lot less expensive in a couple of years. Um, it is a little surprising. I think you could very plausibly argue that Sandin has been at least the fifth best defenseman. I don't think he had the greatest game of his career um, against Detroit, but I think generally the experience has been positive, whether he's playing with Marincin or Justin Hall. And so I'm a little intrigued by this. I don't know how much of it is contracts, how this plays into the expected return of Travis Dermott, which we're assuming is going to happen soon-ish, but it's not imminent. Um, it's interesting that they made that move this early. Um, maybe they feel they've seen enough. Maybe they're anticipating calling him back up later. It's hard to say. Yeah, it's, it's 
neither of us, I think, were expecting this. And I'm just scrolling through Twitter now. It doesn't seem like Twitter is expecting this either. In terms of the cap implications, it adds essentially almost 200,000 in space for the Leafs. Um, Sandine makes 894. Gravel makes 700K. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it helps in that regard. It gives them, basically because the Leafs are an LTIR, they have a new salary cap limit, right? And that that's mm-hmm. basically what they're operating under. That's their cap for the entire season. Um, so basically there, there's a net difference of 194,000 between Sandine's and Gravel's cap hit that they now have that space to work with. So that does make activating Hyman slash Dermot easier. Um, mm-hmm. But all the indications we were getting is that neither would be back until late October at the very earliest. Yeah. So this was um, not a move so. that the Leafs had to make now. And again, neither of us are Marley's experts, but the Marley's seem pretty stacked on defense as well. Yeah, I mean, they had so many people that, uh, at last report, they were sending Mac Hollowell, who's a pretty decent defense prospect coming out of junior. I mean, I'm not saying he's blue chip or anything, but he was playing in the UCHL. And the Leafs have talked in the past about expanding their development system to make it three levels, where they weren't just using the ECHL as kind of a, you know, home for the hopeless, but they were actually using it as part of a development system. Maybe that's... You know, something we're going to see more and more. For Sandine specifically, you can certainly make a developmental argument that he's in his best interest going down, being the guy in the AHL for a season, and then coming back up really ready to rock, having gotten a taste of NHL action. You know, having seen what it takes, how fast the game is, and having gotten some coaching time in with Mike Babcock directly. Uh, I... I think a lot of people are going to be kind of disappointed, frankly. Sandine is the golden boy, and he's been something to get excited about, which hasn't always been the case with this team, just because, you know, we're used to having these great forwards, and when they're a little disappointing, it can feel like a letdown. But I think that, on its face, anyway, I can see a a logic behind it. I'm not sure if that's what they were thinking, but, you know, there was salary cap pressure, and there were... um, Play issues. Now, having said that, and this just occurs to me off the top, I, I mean, there's nothing binding them to keep making this decision going forward. Like, they can call him back up. Yes. So, I, <laughs> I don't want to get too far out over my skis. I don't see why they would be, you know, shuffling up him up and down, because with LTIR, we shouldn't be able to accumulate cap space. Mm-hmm. So, it's not like with uh, Trevor Moore in past years, we actually kind of kept accumulating little pennies of cap space by papering him up and down every time there was a day off. Um, in this case, this sounds like it's intended to be a serious decision. Yeah, I mean, I think the the timing of it implies that because there's no imminent need for the lease to have that extra cap space that I'm aware of. Um, Santine has been fine, in my opinion. Uh, I, I'm very high on him in general. I think he has been a competent third-pairing NHL defenseman. I don't think he's really been anything more than that. So this isn't like sending down, you know, a, a player of like Miro Heiskanen's caliber or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is kind of curious, and I, I am interested to know what our third pair is against Minnesota. Is it going to be Marinson Hall? Yeah. I. I you know what? I'll say this, and I've been low on Justin Hall for a long time. He's looked better the last few games than he yeah, has, absolutely. frankly, ever. Yeah. So, Marinson Hall probably is a de- defensible NHL third pair for the time being. If you've concluded that it really is best for Sandine's development to be sent down, then maybe you do do this, and then when Travis Dermott comes back, you reassess. Uh, it is a little surprising to me, nonetheless. I didn't expect this to happen now. Yeah. If I were expecting it, it would be a little bit later. So I, I guess we'll wait and see how that develops. Um, I don't think, certainly, it reflects anything especially negative about Rasmus Sandin in any kind of larger sense, definitely. I don't think people should take it that way. Yeah, no, I I, I mean, at the end of the day, Sandin is 19 years old and playing an NHL shift. We talked about this when we talked about the Alex Nylander-Henry-Yoki-Haru uh, trade, but if you can play... NHL minutes as a defenseman as a 19 year old and not shit your pants you're doing all right 
You know, it's it's tough. It's really tough. It is. So, you know, I still feel very bullish about Sandine on the whole. Um, okay, so that that was an unplanned kind of uh, <laughs> unplanned sidebar. <laughs> um, we can get back to talking about the forwards and um, I guess the third line, who, who's kind of the apple of everyone's eye right now. Yeah, I mean, whatever else complaints we might have had, I haven't heard a single person be less than excited about uh, Ilya Mikhaev. And I also think, you know, his line mates have delivered too. Alex Kerfoot has been about as good as we could have hoped in the early going. And Trevor Moore uh, has shown some offensive flair, which I sort of thought he didn't really have. I, I still don't know what to expect from him offensively on a going forward basis. But that line right now looks like a genuinely quite good third line. And even if they cool off a bit, which they will... It's still pretty impressive to see, especially considering, you know, we are missing uh, Zach Hyman. And if Kasperi Kapanen gets bumped down, he's still probably a better overall player than Mackay Vermoor. So I guess, you know, that's probably been the bright spot of the early going, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're right that they will cool down. They have a 14% on ice shooting percentage right now. Mm. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I mean, it, for, for reference, nobody sustains over 11 unless they're having the hottest year of their career. Yeah. And nobody sustains over 11 for two years. So, yeah. yeah. Like, I, I remember looking this up um, when I, I wrote earlier this offseason about how, and this is not a unique take in any way, but I, I wrote kind of how unprecedented Mitch Marner's season was uh, from a point scoring perspective. And part mm-hmm. of it was that he has like an almost 12% on a shooting percentage. And I looked up specifically, like, kind of, like, high-end offensive players uh, who play with one another, like, pairs, right? So Kucherov, uh, Stamkos, uh, McDavid, Dreisaitl, pairs like that. And I saw, okay, what's—is it possible for two elite offensive players to sustain, like, a 12% all-night shooting percentage for years at a time? And the answer was no. Um, No. The highest I remember seeing was, like, McDavid and Dreisaitl over their career are at, like, 11.5% but that's yeah. Connor McDavid, right? He's the best offensive player in the world by some distance, right? So anyways, that line is going to cool down. Um, and, mm. I mean, you mentioned Trevor Moore's offensive flair. Everyone ha- looks like they have more offensive flair when 14% of the pucks that they shoot are going in. <laughs> it's true. Right? Yeah. Um, so I think kind of your prior on Moore, it agrees with mine. I, I don't think he's going to be a huge offensive dynamo, but he's not uh, unskilled in that regard. Mm-hmm. But when you, so with this line, even when you look at kind of the more sustainable numbers, like their shot numbers, their expected goals numbers, they're good. And this mm-hmm. line is not really getting babied. They're actually facing tougher forward competition than the Austin Matthews line. And given that the Leafs have played more home games than away games right so far, that reflects a choice on the part of Mike Babcock. So, you know, when we discussed the Kadri Barry Kerfoot trade, we said that. We need Alex Kerfoot to be 75% of Nazem Kadri, and he's doing that right now, at least at 5v5. He doesn't have Kadri's power play brilliance, but, you know, that's that's the price you pay for dealing Nazem Kadri, who is, you know, mm-hmm. a better player. But Kerfoot has been really good, and Mikheyev has been an unbelievable find. Yeah, he already looks like he's going to be the best of the European free agent signings, at least at forward. I mean, we don't have to relitigate the Nikita Zaitsev thing again, but... He's really impressed, and I do kind of think that Mike Babcock maybe has a bit of an eye for these kind of players. You know, he's obviously been a a strong advocate of Zach Hyman for the longest time, and he clearly was very high on Mikhaev. And even, you know, granting, yeah, he's going to cool off, and you don't want to fall too in love with a depth star. I think he's delivered in a way that not too many people predicted. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, that's positive. We were all kind of burned on the kind of European free agents. Like, we, I think the smart money is always on, okay, maybe there'll be a fourth liner, right? And, again, it's early. Mikheyev could very well turn out to be a good fourth liner, but he seems like he can hang on a a third line in the NHL, and that's that's useful. When you're a team that over-invests in their top-end guys as much as the Leafs have, you need to find these players, and, and he's he's been really good. Um, Babcock seems to love him, right? Uh, he, he's he's mm-hmm. just praised him nonstop, especially given kind of the language barrier 
that that Micaiah faces in. Like that's a, that's a real challenge. Like it's a real world challenge. And hockey, you know, it's not. This isn't NASA. They're not like, they're not doing rocket science over here. But you do need to be able to communicate. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Mikheyev has been able to kind of do what he has in an entirely new environment, it's been genuinely impressive. So I'm happy with him, and he just seems like he he's become a fan favorite already with with the the soup oh, thing yeah. and just his style of play is something that Toronto always identifies with, which is like that. That hard-nosed, mm-hmm. gritty, all-effort guy. Yeah, you know, on a team of superstars and guys who are very high-skilled, even though, let's be real, Ilyin Mikhaev is infinitely more skilled than, like, any of the people talking about him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I always find it funny we kind of identify with these working-class players. It's like, well, these guys were still insanely good at every other level before this one yeah Mikhaev probably yeah he's he's been really impressive yeah like in, in his yeah. when he Mikhaev was a kid he was like the Gretzky of his league most likely <laughs> yeah like we have to assume but yeah you know he does he gives it his all um on the note of the language barrier I, I think that um reporters are generally too prone to giving credit to anyone who gives them a quote but in Mikhaev's case, when it's not his first language, when he's clearly trying to make an effort to, you know, talk to people in English, when he could, you know, not necessarily do that, I think that is, you know, kind of gutsy. That shows, like, a real effort. Like, he's doing his best to try and, you know, fit in in Toronto, uh, which I'm sure is not the, the easiest thing. So you really got to root for the guy. Um, and, you know, I, it's a lot more fun when these guys are both really likable off the ice and also showing to be quite good on it, you know? Like, instead of the gritty fan favorites when they don't actually play very well, which is kind of how I felt about Cold Noir. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, that's been the, probably the best story of the season so far. Well, I, I would disagree with you on one on one account because the best story of the season has been Freddy Gauthier. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, that's true. You know, Freddy Gauthier, he just, say what you will about him, every year he gets a bit better. And, you know, you kind of come back and you're like, well, okay, that's pretty good. He's locked down the fourth line center job, which I really did not think he was going to be able to do with Nick Shore and Jason Spezza competing with him. But he's outperformed them, for my money, in the early going. Like, I think he's been the best fourth line center that's it he's so he's been the constant yeah. on that line and it's look this is a podcast that talks a lot about numbers and how teams and players do when they're on the ice Gauthier's numbers right now are not amazing it's very hard to read into fourth line minutes over the course of a full season because their usage is so carefully manufactured let alone over six games mm-hmm. let alone over six games where yeah we've had two sets of wingers for half the games and two different sets of wingers for the other half of the games. So we're kind of throwing the numbers out here. Um, the numbers of the fourth line have been fine, but like just Gauthier looks way better. He do- he looks like an NHL player now. Yeah. And you and I have mm-hmm. been among his harshest critics, you know, even as recently as this preseason, we're like, okay, come on, this, this has to be the end of the GOAT, right? But it's not. He, yeah. he just keeps coming and you really... On Iran, you have to hand it to him. He clearly has a crazy work ethic. He's clearly taking his job very seriously. And I'm sure most NHL players do, but few have shown kind of the kind of the improvement that Goche has from essentially not being an NHL player at all to being one who, you know what, I think he is genuinely a fourth line center now. Yeah, I I would agree. You know, the knock on him when he was with the Marlies, or one of the knocks on him, was that he didn't seem to have the kind of the on-ice drive that was hoped for. And some of that was just he's a big man who doesn't play as physical as some people would like. So you notice when the 6'5 guy isn't hitting anybody much. But he really looks driven now. You know, like he's in on every play. He's getting occasionally offensive chances. And because he is still Freddie Goche, they're not usually going in. But by God, he's getting them and he's doing his best with them. You know, in everything but his hands, which are still pretty stony, he has improved 
noticeably since I've started watching them, and that's more than I can say for some prospects that I was higher on him on than him. So, yeah, I mean, credit where it's due. The, the rest of the fourth line around him is kind of in flux because um, we've got a lot of names competing for a limited number of jobs, and with the looming salary cap crunch, we don't know how many spares we're going to have, but it's probably not two forward spares. Yeah, and Gauthier is also helped by the fact that the Leafs' fourth line wingers are, I think, good fourth line wingers. I think the weakest so far had been Timoshov, and he had the game of his life against Detroit. It was really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, got a couple points, I think, and also just super active. That that fourth line in general was very strong. And I guess, mm-hmm. again, it's Detroit. They're, Detroit's fourth line is basically an AHL team. Yeah. <laughs> But, I mean, they have, like, three fourth lines yes, from exactly. their perspective, but, yeah. But, yeah, like, it, it's, you know, yeah. credit where it's due. I'm I'm happy with that group. I think they've they've been fine enough. The, the margins between fourth lines, I think, are, are generally pretty small. They don't play a huge amount of minutes. They generally don't make a huge difference. So if your fourth line is doing all right, then that's, that's, that's fine-ish, right? You don't, you can always hope for more, but... Mm-hmm big picture doesn't make a gigantic difference um and yeah the fourth line's been certainly good enough and it's it's hard not to root for Gauthier right he's yeah he's won us over yeah absolutely (laughs) and he he's going to hit 200 NHL games and I'm so happy about that oh yeah I know he's officially going to be a hit draft pick now like that's that's how it's going to go and you know what good for him um you know I, I think the fourth line has been impressive at times. I really thought that Jason Spezza was kind of cruising into a role a couple games ago, but these things can change so quickly, and you know, you don't want to fall for whichever guy got a point that night. Timoshoff, as you were saying, he had the best game of his career against Detroit, and I wonder if that helps sustain the competition a little longer. I don't know. It's, it's going to be interesting. Babcock was raving about him mm-hmm. after the game. And so you wonder what is going to be the eventual decision there and what's going to going to force the decision. You know, in an ideal scenario, we could just keep two spares at forward and one on defense. But alas, that's what happens when you give Mitch Marner $17 billion a year. And so we at some point probably are going to have to waive somebody. Yeah. And that's going to be too bad. By the way... um, Pierre Lebrun also just tweeted with regards to Sandin that um, this is about the play. I'm quoting from Lebrun's Twitter. Uh, this is about the player's development. He's playing just 12 minutes a game in the NHL and no special teams. My sense is the Leafs feel his development is better served playing big minutes within a more impactful role in the AHL. So I don't know whether that's sourced or speculation. Um, he does say my sense, which implies it's his opinion, but it's Lebrun. I don't think he's capable of having opinions that someone hasn't told him before so i guess yeah I mean, that that's kind of that's kind of where it stands at least that's how it's being framed in the media right now um and that that probably makes that probably makes sense i don't really mind it um i don't think the difference between sandine and say marinson is is honestly that enormous at the moment if the least feel that's mm-hmm. what's best for sandine's development then you know they have more information than me, and they've generally shown to be pretty good, uh, a pretty good developmental club the last few years. So I'll trust them on this. Yeah, the other thing is that, like, if you're really convinced that the absolute best lineup for this team is going to involve Sandin, you can still bring him back for the playoffs. Yeah, they they aren't like you know, like it's not they're not cutting him out of the will. You know, no, it's like. Clearly, he's still the jewel of the organization in terms of prospects. And so if, you know, they do think that he deserves more ice time, more special teams time, more what have you than just getting the the third line experience, I think that's a very defensible argument. I think people are more annoyed by this because it's not very fun. We kind of know what to expect from Marincin at Hall at this point. Sandine could be anything. Sandine could be, hopefully, much more than either of those two players, but that doesn't necessarily reflect on what's going to be the most effective third pair right now. So, yeah, I, I guess it makes sense to me, even if it's earlier than I expected this to happen. So, Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. 
All right, before we head out, we should talk a little bit about the Leafs' power play. Yes. Um, so we talked about this a bit last week. Uh, we talked about it a bit subsequently. Um, where is your opinion of the power play at now? Is it working? Is it good? I mean, I don't really love it right now. I just We're not taking really great shots to my eye. And, mm. and, and I mean, look, power plays are one of those things where if you just look at a shot plot of Tampa's power play, you're like, why are they taking all these shots from the circles? Well, those shots from the circles are one-timers from Kucherov and Stamkos. Yeah. So they're, they're much better shots than a shot plot says. But just watching the Leafs, and this may be biased by the fact that, you know, they just had a truly ineffective game against Detroit. They don't look that dangerous when they get set up. Mitch Marner is trying to make fetch happen with his one-timer. And it's it's just not happening. Um, Matthews, yeah. you know, Matthews has a good enough shot that, yeah, he'll just occasionally wire one. And it, it'll work. We saw that uh, a couple times already this year. But it doesn't seem like it's fully clicking in like a super cohesive way yet there a lot of there's a lot of point shots i feel more point shot this is more of a second unit problem actually and we can talk about the second unit more in a little bit but with the first unit yeah it's just it doesn't it seems like it's much harder for marner to facilitate from his offside because of the angle that being a right shot puts him at there he has fewer passing options Mm -hmm. um so things are just a bit slower maybe this is just kind of familiarity and once the puck starts whizzing around really quickly, and we've seen a couple of really nice one-touch passing sequences. Marner's goal against Columbus was a great example. Um, you know, maybe if that comes into comes into play more, we'll see greater success. But I'm not completely convinced by this yet. And also, the way they get set up is very annoying, right? Like the, their zone entries have been truly bad to start the year. Yeah, and that's kind of what stood out to me. And so we were talking a bit about this, and I'm not 100% sure uh, how much variation there is from one power play to another in terms of their ability to get the zone and get set up. Um, it like You can clearly think of players who seem to be much better at it, uh, who seem to be trusted more with it. William Nylander is one, and Jake Gardner is another. But gaining the zone is really critical to doing anything on a power play. And the most frustrating power plays to watch are the ones where the opposing penalty killers just absolutely shut you out before you even get in there. Uh, I've remarked on this before, but in the past when we've played Carolina, they've often done a very good job of just boxing us out at the line and stopping our zone entry. And we basically didn't seem to have a response some nights. You know, they would just hold us off completely. Um, when I get really frustrated with the first unit, I'm more patient in terms of once they're set up, I kind of trust that there's enough talent to achieve something. It's the failure to get set up that really drives me crazy. And I don't know if that's because it really is significantly worse than it should be or if it's just because it's so frustrating when it happens but i've thought more than once about is there some way to get william nylander on that unit because this is something that he is really good at yeah and it's kind of i don't know the leafs so for the last few years um people have kind of railed against the predictable kind of drop back pass um that the leafs and many many other teams do like i would say 60 to 70 percent of nhl teams their primary power play zone entry is like kind of a person takes the puck up the ice skating not at full speed and makes an option read essentially where whether they drop it back or they keep it themselves and most often they'll drop it back and the next guy kind of flying up has in theory more speed can attack the blue line either force the defenders to back off if the defenders don't back off they can pass it to a winger at either the near or far boards and then try and either cycle it deep or feather a puck into the streaking player who just passed it off. So it's something that works well in theory. It didn't work well at all against Detroit. I don't have numbers for how good the zone entries have been in general, but it feels like we could be a bit more creative there. Um, and again, this is not a unique thought. People have been remarking on this for a while. But yeah, it's, it's just, it hasn't fully clicked yet. And I see your point about wanting someone like Nylander on 
the ice because he is a, a human zone entry, right? Like he doesn't really need space. He can just he'll just do it regardless. But it's not mm-hmm. as if the first power play unit is bereft of you know high end puck carries as well. Mitch Marner is a good zone entries guy. Austin Matthews is good at that. John Tavares is good at that. Morgan Riley is one of the best skating defensemen in the world. Like it shouldn't be a huge problem for them. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's tempting to just think that is the bottom line. It's like, look, there's too much talent. They will figure it out. And they might. Um, could happen very soon. Like, it's not at all out of the realm of possibility for this power play unit to just sort of get it together and then score three goals next game or something. Mm-hmm. Like, they absolutely have the capacity to do that. And if you're going to let an experiment work itself out, you probably do need to give it 10 games or so. Oh, absolutely. You know, you have to let the guy have a chance to set up a system. You have to trust that it's worth a sincere attempt as the players get more comfortable. So I don't know. The thing about the Leafs power play is the expectations are so high because we've had uh, a top-ranked power play in previous years. Uh, I think Jim Hiller, for the record, deserves a lot of credit. And there was a sense with the coaching that it was time to get rid of the assistant coaches. And I said, you know, that's kind of the way of the world at the time. But I think it's hard to deny he did a pretty great job with the power play for several years. Even if you think in the second half of last season, they tailed off a bit. Um, you know, the standard is now set at we're supposed to have a top five power play in the NHL, bar none. And so when we're anywhere short of that, it does feel like a missed opportunity because we need that to be a team strength. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess we're going to see, but yeah, hard to be patient, I know. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like the even strength things we were discussing at the at the top of the show, there's no net front shots any, at all anymore. Now, part of that is we had John Tavares there, and now we have Andreas Janssen there. And Janssen is a good player, but he is not John Tavares. Mm. Right? And Tavares kind of, his stature, for one, demands some touches there, but he's also just a savant at generating shots and um, kind of getting his stick on rebounds and getting his stick on tips in a way mm-hmm. that most players aren't. Um, but part of that is also systemic. We're, we're not really forcing the puck to the net as much. Um, and that said, I think if you isolate for the Leafs' top unit, uh, Katya mentioned this, that their Corsi and XG is still quite good on the power play. So... Mm. It's the second unit that's really kind of dragging things down. And the second unit has what I will politely call a talent issue. <laughs> it's too bad about the players. Yeah. Like, uh, it's it's William Nylander, Tyson Berry, and some guys who are not really that good on power plays. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the deal there. And, you know, the question is, okay, how much should you play your first unit? And that's been a topic of a lot of discussion. People look at the Penguins, who basically don't, play their second unit at all their um, second unit's their fourth line wonder. basically <laughs> just yeah just, it's like you know, you know get get ready for even strength boys yeah <laughs> like in all seriousness like they're put on in anticipation of the power play is over now because crosby and malkin and previously castle and then still Latang couldn't score in a minute 45 you know <laughs> like that's kind of the attitude they take i don't know i i mean i can see the appeal if this first unit starts working at a really high clip I'm gonna instinctively think maybe we should play them more you know (laughs) like intuitively there's a lot more going on than there is on the second unit which is you know sometimes playing Trevor Moore God bless him or someone else you know so yeah like right right now the um the top unit is at like they're in the mid to high 50s in terms of percentage of power play time that seems a bit too low Mm -hmm. I'd like to see them you know, 60 to 65. Yeah, just, you know, get an extra few seconds. I mean, it. in any given power play, it's going to vary somewhat because the change happens when they get cleared out. Yes. And so it's whenever that tends to occur. But on average, you know, you should see these numbers start to trend in a certain direction for sure. Yeah. So it's a bit difficult to to judge right now. I'm, I'm certainly not convinced that this power play is, like, super great and... You know, it's going to fix all the issues from the power play last year, which is too predictable and all that sort of thing. Like, this is kind of in my white whale, right? Where I'm like, <laughs> power play last year was good, and there's no reason to think right now that the current power play is better. We just have to wait for more, uh, more time to pass and for us to see exactly what's going on. 
Yeah. Um, so, uh, we did say we were going to continue our trend of being mad at stuff online. <laughs> um, and look at the odd bad take that we might see and say why we object to it. And so, I've got one going for that. You. Yeah, go for it. Plow ahead. All right. So, Eric Francis is a beat reporter with Sportsnet, and he follows the Calgary Flames. I generally try to be sort of benefit of the doubt e for people who are doing this. It's a tough job. You have to maintain access and relationships, and that is a trade-off that, you know, is often in the mind of reporters. You know, they want to keep access to a source, and so it's not always beneficial to slag the source in public or whatever. Eric Francis has sold out completely to the organization he reports on, and he just parrots their party line, no matter how embarrassing it is. He did this with the arena negotiations, and even when getting the Flames a new arena was going to cost social spending for the city of Calgary, he kind of treated it like it was very obvious that the city was being silly to even think about this. So this week, he, <laughs> he took it upon himself to talk about the early returns on the James Neal for Milan Lucic trade. And so last summer, you know, when we were looking at this, we said... This is a trade of two bad contracts, but James Neal is probably a better bet to rebound. Uh, in the very early going, James Neal has ridden a shooting heater with great line mates, and as a result, he has scored a ton of goals. Uh, he's still currently leading the league with seven. Obviously, we don't expect him to continue that, but it is very impressive nonetheless, and he's matched his total from last year already. Uh, Milan Lucic has zero goals and zero assists in six games and he does have 26 penalty minutes now i think if you were most bordering on all people who know how the game of hockey works you might say is it better to have the guy who has the most goals in the league or a guy who doesn't have any goals in the league and i think most people would say the first one but eric francis boldly took the stance that actually the trade was a win-win for both teams I really have to emphasize this might be the stupidest article I've ever read. So he talks about basically uh, there was a game the Flames were playing and they were down 3 nothing to the Los Angeles Kings and Lucic got in a fight and Francis just going all in on cause and effect here says Lucic's fists turned a 3-0 deficit into an emotional comeback thwarted by Drew Doughty in overtime. I think we've probably talked before about the stuff with enforcers and stuff like that, but the result of enforcers in the modern NHL tends to be they fight other tough guys who do not achieve very much. It doesn't have a huge impact on the game. If you want those guys, you can get them for the league minimum. And they still have to be able to hold a shift. You know, we talked about Matt Martin in Toronto. Matt Martin can play an NHL shift effectively. He's a good fourth liner. It is legit open to question, if you look at the entire rest of his game, whether Milan Lucic can still do that. Uh, he is struggling a lot. Now, his Corsi was still okay in Edmonton, but the production is gone. The skill level is really dubious. He doesn't have much speed. I think what's so annoying to me about this, if you can't tell, about these kind of articles is that it's very piss on my head and tell me it's raining, Yeah, frankly. Where it's just, you know, even though this is obviously not working out for both teams equally. There's not even a case here being made that, well, it's only been a few games. These players will tend to regress in opposite directions. That's a reasonable enough take to make, by the way. That's not what he's saying, though. What he's saying is because Lucic punched a guy and almost won a game, but didn't, it doesn't really matter that the other guy has produced orders of magnitude more. It's that same old argument where it's, you know, the intangibles are supposed to outweigh anything that we can at all measure because that's what the reporter or the opinionator would prefer to say. And he is kind of presenting the Flames party line, which is that this trade was not a complete robbery by Edmonton, because let's be honest, it's really embarrassing to lose any kind of trade to Edmonton. Yeah. Um, and I think that he really has just taken it upon himself to present this totally absurd 
take as if it's realistic. And I, I do find that annoying. Like, it should be embarrassing to say things that are just obviously made up and to go on and on about moxie and grit and stuff like that when there's no evidence that it's leading to anything. Because, again, he hasn't produced jack shit. So... That was my personal opinion on that take, which I thought was genuinely awful. No, you're you're 100 right. It's as you said, it it's willfully untrue, right? Like I, I don't mm-hmm. know if you gave him truth serum, I wonder what he would actually say because I, I don't know if he actually believes what he wrote. If he does, that's concerning. If he doesn't, I'm not sure which is worse. Actually, <laughs> there's a no win here. Yeah, so it's just. It's really awful. We were subject to a lot of this um, in like the 2013, 2012 era of the Leafs, especially once David Clarkson was signed. Ugh. And yeah, it's just it's just so annoying that people still kind of write that sort of dribble. Okay, so anyways, on that very sunny note, uh, <laughs> on that very sunny note, we uh, I think that's everything we wanted to discuss for today. Um, so you can catch... All of mine and Fuleman's stuff on pensionplanpuppets.com. I recently wrote an article talking about the Leafs' top six and how they've kind of performed this season. So it's a bit more of an in-depth look at some of the stuff we discussed in the first half of this podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you all for listening, and we'll catch you next week. <laughs>